This is the last full day of our August session 2020 in the time of COVID when we have some people attending who are living here and more people attending who are doing session at home. Thank you everyone in this session here and at home for your earnest practice. I hope that each one of you has been able to experience some aspect of mountain body, mountain mind, the stability and imperturbability of a mountain which dwells within you. It is not outside you, but we have to turn to outside sources to help remind us and call it forth. And I hope that practicing with rivers, with waters, has helped you touch into your own quality, your own awareness of the constantly flowing nature of your life and the songs within. Thank goodness for our practice. With the vivid ongoing certainty, uncertainty of events, such as the upcoming election in the US, the COVID pandemic, the, what, 160 lightning strikes in the Bay Area and resultant many fires the video evidence of rampant racism, and many other events in the news that are pouring fuel for anxiety and stress into our minds and hearts every day. Stepping aside from the never-ending distress of the world, the never-ending distress of the world, this is samsara. We are experiencing samsara in a particularly vivid way now, but it has always been so for someone, the someones somewhere, for many people somewhere, for many creatures somewhere on this earth. Stepping aside from the never-ending distress of the world of samsara is essential to our mental health. It is, I believe, mandatory to our mental health. It certainly has been to mine. And especially if we have been called to work in realms where we directly encounter the suffering of living beings, humans and other beings on this earth. Actually, we are all called to work there in some way to not escape, but to decrease our own suffering so that we can see, hear others and reach out our hands, the hands that I hope you have watched continually caring for you, to reach out those hands to care for others. It is not selfish to step back for a week to regain balance. It is mandatory to our ability 
to live as a clear-minded, warm-hearted human being. It is mandatory to our effectiveness, whatever realm we work in, as we fulfill our bodhisattva vow. In Japan, a form of therapy began in the 1980s called Shindrin-yoku, forest bathing. It is not the same as hiking or jogging in nature. It is a mindfulness or meditation practice of slowing down, of sitting down, of stopping, and opening all the senses to the ongoing flow of the life of the natural world. The perfumed breath of the natural world the delicate microclimates of temperature shifts, the thousands of colors of what we lump together and call green, the many bird and animal sounds and animal and bird encounters that our buildings and our constant barrage of thoughts and emotions block out. This is from a book called Forest Bathing by the chairman of the Japanese Society for Forest Medicine. And it's about forest medicine. The concept that humans have a biological need to connect with nature has been called biophilia from the Greek, meaning love of life and the living world. The concept was made popular by the American biologist E.O. Wilson in 1984. He believed that because we evolved in nature, we have a biological need to connect with it. We love nature because we learned to love the things that helped us to survive. We feel comfortable in nature because that is where we have lived for most of our life on Earth. We are genetically determined to love the natural world. It is in our DNA. And this affinity for the natural world is fundamental to our health. Contact with nature is as vital to our well-being as regular exercise and a healthy diet. E.O. Wilson wrote, Our existence depends upon this propensity. Our spirit is woven from it. Hope rises on its currents. We are hardwired to affiliate with the natural world. And just as our health improves when we are in it, so our health suffers when we are divorced from it. We are part of the natural world. Our rhythms are the rhythms of nature. As we walk slowly through the forest, seeing, listening, smelling, tasting, and touching, we bring our rhythms into step with nature. Shindrin-yoku is like a bridge. By opening our senses, it bridges the gap between us and the natural world. And when we are in harmony with the natural world, 
we can begin to heal. Our nervous system can reset itself. Our bodies and minds can go back to how they ought to be. No longer out of kilter with nature, but once again in tune with it, we are refreshed and restored. We may not travel very far on our forest walk. So he talks about parks and so on. But in connecting us with nature, Shinrin Yoku takes us all the way home to our true selves. All the way home to our true selves. There are many studies from many countries, and he quotes a lot of them in the book, showing that many health benefits, that there are many health benefits of nature on physical and mental health. Lower blood pressure, lower cortisol levels, lists of how bathing in nature, connecting with nature benefits us. These benefits are produced even by pictures of nature. It's incredible. Or by recorded sounds of nature. In Japan, they're establishing a um, record, a historical record, um, a library of natural sounds. One of the sounds which we don't hear so much here, but you hear in the huge forests, bamboo forests in Japan, when the wind blows is the bamboo knocking against its, each other. Kind of a lovely, hollow, musical sound. One of the earliest studies uh, in this area of the health benefits of nature was done by a young American surgeon who was puzzled by one, why some patients recovered from surgery so much faster than others. And he tried to look at this in detail. He himself had been ill because he had uh, spent long periods of time in his childhood bedridden with bouts of kidney disease. And the, it was the view out of a large pine tree out of his bedroom window that sustained him during these episodes. And he found that post-surgery patients whose rooms looked out on a brick wall reported more pain, required more pain medication, and recovered more slowly than those whose windows looked out on trees. And then there's an accumulation of research that has showed that even a picture of nature had a beneficial effect on perception of pain and healing rates. And as a result, many hospitals, including my own, have installed healing gardens. When we drive on a busy street, it requires a different kind of attention than in nature. Driving on a busy street requires a kind of anxious, overstimulated, continual voluntary attention. In nature, we shift to what's called a soft fascination that we are able to open into when we're completely immersed in nature. Soft fascination requires no mental effort. It is an innate form of open awareness that unfolds when we are in nature. When our minds are quiet and when the minds are not anxious about or interfering, 
with our bodies humming, creative, continually healing, continually restoring life force, then our physical health benefits too. In our practice, we need to reach the place where we want our thoughts to quiet down because we are so enthralled with what is brought to us in each mind moment, not covered by thought. In our practice, we need to reach a place where we are at last able to have more clear space than thought noise in our minds. Then a new experience of who we are opens up. Our body becomes the earth body, the mountain body, the water body, the so-so yellow dandelion flower body, the clumsy fuzzy bumblebee body clinging precariously to that flower, the leaf body suddenly made transparent by a ray of sunlight, the startled fawn body, the always-at-home body, the always-at-home heart and mind. Dogen Zenji writes, enlightened vision is actualized in the mountains, grasses, trees, earth, rocks, and walls. Do not doubt this. And through practice, we can come to the place where we carry that mind, into the city, and enlightened nature manifests in what we call the unnatural world, manifests in the sparkle and of little bits of mica in the sidewalk, and the shadow of a few leaves on the pavement, or the crunch of dry leaves under our feet, or the pattern of bricks in a wall. or even the flow of traffic, the jewel-like color of changing streetlights. Dogen Zenji writes, mountains contain complete virtue with nothing lacking. You may have noticed how your ordinary mind focuses on what is wrong. Hmm, have you noticed that? how your mind focuses on what is wrong. I notice it in my own mind when I walk around the monastery. Oh, that needs sweeping. That needs to be put back where it belongs. That window's dirty, and so on. And on and on, if we don't catch it. And as a doctor, I am trained to focus on what is wrong with a patient. Some parents only comment on what a child does wrong. And you may have noticed that our news media focuses primarily on what is wrong. And you might have noticed that our inner critical voices are obsessed with what is wrong with us, constantly noticing and worrying about what is wrong within us and outside of us is very depleting 
having it as the basis of our daily awareness leads the heart-mind away from love, away from its innate qualities of love, and into irritation and anger. Mountains contain complete virtue. Isn't that true in our experience? We don't look at a mountain and instantly notice what's wrong with it. That mountain shouldn't be so tall. It's absurd, right? That mountain is so ugly. That mountain is failing. Look, Soten, look at that mountain, it's failing. That lake is nice, but you know, it's really imperfectly shaped. Asymmetrical, terrible. And you know, I think that river would be more beautiful if it flowed in a different direction, maybe uphill. That's crazy, that's craziness. We would recognize that as craziness, and yet we don't recognize it as crazy. except when we apply what our mind is continually saying to the natural world. We do it with ourselves, we do it with others all the time. So what Dogen Zenji is saying here is, you contain complete virtue, and nothing is lacking. You contain complete virtue, and nothing is lacking. This is so hard to believe. And it is the experience of enlightenment. Everyone has had glimpses, has had moments when the burden of self drops and we merge with what is. And all is good. All is good beyond good. But Dogen Zenji also warns us about holding to ourselves the many openings that sincere, sustained practice will bring. Even if you have visions of shining treasure, of Buddha realms, of all the beautiful qualities of enlightened beings, the true state is not yet revealed. Dogen Zenji in this Sutra, and in most of his writing, is simultaneously talking to us about mountains or other aspects of the world and about ourselves, our truest selves, our original nature, our essence, our complete virtue. Always moving, but not like the movement of humans, unobstructed always unobstructed, walking in a direction we call forward and a direction we call backward. Oh, that was such a good session. I really made progress. Oh, that was such a difficult session. Why couldn't, it, why couldn't I have experienced the bliss that I experienced in the last session? Something must be wrong. And off the mind goes, like a mouse in a maze looking for the cheese called This is what was wrong, wrong with me, wrong with that other person, wrong with the world. Oh, I figured it out. I figured out what was wrong during this session. Now I'm happy. Sure, not. 
Dogen Zenji and also long-term koan work keeps returning back to pointing out to us the nature of our true selves, which contain everything, all the apparent opposites, and is not bound by them, just as mountains and rivers are not bound by any of these opposites. That's why saying it is so absurd that mountain is too tall. Mountains are neither strong nor weak, neither wet nor dry, neither moving nor still, neither male nor female, neither enlightened nor deluded. Our original nature is neither, 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 neither. It manifests. Our true nature is continually giving birth to all of it, nothing left out. Which brings us to the passage about the barren woman giving birth at night. As always, there are many layers that Dogen Zenji presents simultaneously. It's kind of his miraculous specialty as he writes, because these are all there in his awareness. So we can begin by pondering in the 1200s, which is when Dogen Zinji wrote, what was it like to be a barren woman? In many cultures, in ancient times and even today, it makes you useless. You could be thrown out by your husband or burned to death by your in-laws and a new wife taken, and to be a woman without the support of a man meant disaster and death. Your job was to produce male heirs and a bunch of children because you would lose at least half by age five to disease and accidents, and if war or slavers came along, you might lose them all. Our practice asks us to put ourselves into the lives of everything and everyone. Imagine if you had been barren, a failure for years, and finally you gave birth to a child. A cause to rejoice? Yes. Separate from this child? Yes, sadly so, and no, never separate. A parent? Yes. A child? Yes. Crawling around on the floor playing with Legos or letting your children ride horsey on your back. When we have children, this opportunity opens if we take it up. Now we can read these words again as the giving birth that occurs in spiritual practice. Born out of the dark night of the soul, 
when everything that once gave pleasure turns to dry sand, when we cannot see one-tenth of an inch ahead on the path, and we begin to doubt that there even is a path, when we cannot bear the labor of sitting down again on the cushion or of uttering a futile word of prayer, born out of the descent into the deepest layers of meditation, in that deep, deep darkness when the self dissolves and nothing, nothing, nothing moves except somewhere far away in that infinite cavern of darkness, once in an eternity a breath, a wind, moves by itself back and forth. We know these words, born again, High value is placed in some religious traditions of being born again. And Jesus said, Become as a little child, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we are in nature, we become a child of nature again, open-eyed, open-eared, full of wonder and the sense of being at home. When, in the long labor of deep practice, the mysterious pivot turns and we are turned inside out and our original nature appears, it seems, as if it was born from us and becomes too soon separate from us. Past and future drop away and we experience the world with the eyes of a newborn child as fresh each moment. Everything is precious. The labor was worthwhile because we are free. The mind fumbles for certainty in this new life and declares, oh, I had this great experience. Now I am awakened. And the true separation begins. We claim it as a possession, as an accomplishment, And doing so, it eludes us again. And we think, oh, it only resides in the monastery. Only I could be at the monastery. Or it resides only in Sashin. If only I could do a three-month Sashin. Or only in Ayahuasca. Or only in Psilocybin. Or only in our lover's embrace. Ordinary people think that water is always in rivers or oceans, but this is not so. Rivers and oceans exist in water. Even where there is not a river or an ocean, there is water. Again, many layers. One is this, the belief that enlightenment is always in and limited to Buddhas, wise people, and sages. Water is always in rivers and oceans. Enlightenment is always in Buddhas, wise people, and sages. But enlightenment exists in, actually is, all of creation. In you, in every one of yourselves, 
and earthworms in every one of their cells, in snot, in pearls. Even where there is not a single being or any bit of substance, there is enlightenment. When Buddha ancestors appeared and taught, it never fails to appear. Because of this, Buddha ancestors take up enlightenment and make it their body and mind, make it their thought. What a wonderful aspiration to take up enlightenment and make it our body and mind. Then there is no trace of anyone having entered the mountain. And our truest desire is to empty ourselves out more and more so that the Dharma flows through unobstructed. And yet, someone emerges, is born from the mountain, and comes back into the endlessly flowing world where we can catch fish and eat them with thanksgiving. We can catch people in the net of dharma and watch them struggle and rejoice with them. We can catch the way and be always glad to be caught by it. When you investigate mountains and rivers thoroughly, It is the work of mountains and rivers. When you investigate everything, anything thoroughly, it is the work of enlightenment at work within you. Through this work, enlightenment does appear in this realm as wise persons and sages. Although enlightenment belongs to no one, Enlightened nature belongs to people who love it. You should know that enlightenment is fond of wise people and sages, and they are fond of it. Enlightened nature calls to you. From within your own body and mind, from within your particular bit, born out of it on a particular day and in a particular place. Take that bit, love it, study it, and open it up with the help of mountains, rivers, oceans, the great earth, and the great sky. Open up to the unbounded body and mind that it was born from, that you were born from. It has never left you and never will, but it is hiding in plain sight, waiting for you to come closer, 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 and into the arms of its continuous embrace. Thank you.